This is a HeadGum Podcast. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know the truth. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and here's a story you've heard before. A famous man gets in trouble for cheating on his partner. Of course, he doesn't want to look like a jerk in the press, though, so here's what he does. He comes out and says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not a jerk. I'm a sex addict. See, by using the language of addiction, he's able to medicalize his problem, seek treatment, and absolve himself, right? Because he's not, you know, he's not just an asshole. He had a disease. And here's the thing. If you've got cash, there's a network of scientifically dodgy sex addiction centers who are just waiting to help you launder your reputation. We have seen this story play out again, time and time again in the press. Just take Anthony Weiner to take the example of one famous dick. Uh, The truth about sex addiction, though, is that it isn't really an actual medical thing. Now look, of course it's possible to have sexual behaviors that are bad for your personal or professional life, right? You can totally fuck up sexually in a way that is damaging, and it is quite possible to want to seek help with that. But if you look, in fact, scientifically at the way addiction works in the brain, sex addiction doesn't really measure up. In studies of people addicted to, say, drugs or smoking or gambling, their brain activates very quickly when they see a picture of what they're addicted to. Give an addicted brain a cue for its addiction, and it just lights up. But when you show a supposed sex addict or porn addict the thing that they're supposedly addicted to, their brain reacts pretty normally. Another sign of addiction is something called escalation. For something to be addictive, it needs to be more and more addictive over time. So in the case of drugs, you start off with a little bit, and then you need more and more until you work your way up to what could be a lethal dose in some cases. But in porn, studies have shown no evidence for escalation in terms of the time spent looking at it or a slide into more and more extreme content. So it's no wonder then that the American Psychological Association and the World Health Organization have rejected sex addiction as a clinical definition. Sex addiction just does not seem to be a real thing. Now, as a society, we are sex-obsessed, but this misunderstanding about sex addiction is just the sexy tip of our ignorance iceberg. Sex is a foundational part of our humanity, but our conversation about it is often shrouded by superstition and pseudoscience and senseless moralism. The fact is that despite its centrality to our lives, we just don't know that much about sex at all. Well, here today to tell us more about the new frontiers of sex science, our guest today is an honest-to-God sex scientist. Her name is Nicole Prousey. She's a PhD and currently a scientist with Liberos. Now, I want to say we did our very best here to have an inclusive conversation about sex, uh, but I want you to be involved in that conversation because I'm always trying to do better in that regard. So please hit me up on Twitter. Let us know how we're doing. And with that said, hey, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was a really fun one. Please welcome Nicole Prousey. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. So you're a sex scientist. Sure. <laughs> you don't sound very confident about it. I go by many names. That's a good one. Oh, okay. What what else are you called? The technical is sexual psychophysiologist. So that's an umbrella for the psychology and physiology kind of joining those fields together. Psychophysiologist. Yep. Cool. And you work for a company called? Myself, Libros. Oh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your company is called Libros. Yes. And you told me just before we started recording, you do what? 
at this company? Sexual biotech. Now, what the hell is that? That's very intriguing. Uh, it's a sexier way of saying sexual psychophysiology. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the Yeah, most people don't know that term. So kind of sexual biotech mm-hmm. conveys broadly what we're doing. And uh, it's maybe less sexy than that. Them, it makes me, yeah, I mean, I just start, my mind starts spinning with like science fictional ideas, like like nanobots that make you horny or something. That's like, us. Really? <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I made that so, up. One of the things we'd worked on is like uh, patterns of automated genital stimulation for an orgasm study we were working on. And the question is, what is that? Like, what is an automated pattern that would work for men and women? Does such a thing exist? And it turns out there are no data on that. So we had to do some piloting and that involved automating a vibrator on the genitals to figure out how to to instantiate that response. So there are people... So I just want to get a sense of the day-to-day of sex science. <laughs> you got a vibrator and, and what are you, you got a control group that's getting one kind of pattern a bzz, 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 and then you're, some people are getting, bzz, 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 some people are getting bzz, 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 yeah, or what? That's what I want you to think. Most of our day is like programming and statistical analysis, <laughs> but the fun days are yes, like piloting, bringing in poor friends <laughs> or uh, pilots who are willing to let us hook them up in non-threatening ways to try out different things that we're. Wow. So sex science, you said you don't have, you didn't have data on that particular thing you were looking for. Sex science, my understanding is it's kind of a weirdly undercovered topic. Yeah, we have all kinds of challenges in getting our work done. And so we're uh, very thin on some areas of development and how to test things, especially in the high arousal range. So that's kind of anything beyond a few minutes of porn. We don't have a lot of data for in the lab. Now, why is that? Uh, the, so some of the challenges are political, especially in the U.S. We have uh, groups that openly oppose us and try and stop our work. Uh, for example, the primary funding group in the U.S. is the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been five grants brought before Congress in the history of the NIH, and all five were sex grants. That is, these were grants that were awarded, and Congress uh. tried to take them away because they didn't like that NIH was funding anything to do with sexuality. So as thin as the funding already is, you know, our grants can be taken away from us just because of the content area that we work on. And so that, those are kind of solid institutional barriers uh, that obviously if you have no money, you can't get work done. And there are lots of protests as well. So, you know, the U.S. is a Christian nation and we have lots of uh, religious groups that oppose what we do. And There's a lot of Christians in the nation. I wouldn't just, I wouldn't uh, call it a Christian well, nation. Well, depending, but, yeah, how you want to slice that. Yeah. Um, but they're certainly very vocal and very influential. And sure. so, you know, we have um, people who feel very strongly about sexual values. <laughs> and so <we're, laughs> we try to reduce our bias and uh, investigate things from a scientific perspective. But it's impossible not to step on someone's toes with almost anything you want to study in that domain. And so, you know, we regularly are getting threatened and everyone wants us fired from wherever we are. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) it's a tough place to get good scientists to work because, you know, if you're an excellent neuroscientist and you can go into depression where there's a path and there's funding and it's a known quantity, or you can go and have to fight your way for the rest of your career to even be able to do your research. Yeah. You know, if you're excellent and you have a choice, where do you go? You probably go to, you know, a less resistant path where you're not going to have to fight that fight every day. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me that it, you know, of the types of scientists we've we've had on the show, you know, sleep scientists, all different mm-hmm. uh, just trying to think about stuff with the human body, often they're university affiliated and and you know, but come to think of it, I'm like well, it almost tracks for me that you're uh, an independent uh, yes. operator uh, doing this research as opposed to, you know, I hear from USC today. Is there is there also an institutional barrier with those big research institutions that, like, maybe don't want people jacking off in the science lab? Absolutely. So I was an academic <laughs> for 10 years, actually, and I came here to work at UCLA in psychiatry, and that was my kind of a decision to transition out entirely and not to try anymore in academia was we tried to get a study through to study orgasm in the lab. And uh, the ethics board will allow us to buzz the genitals. We could put a vibrator on them and like buzz it for a few seconds. But we had to promise they wouldn't ejaculate. 
And we said, well, uh, <laughs> I can try. It Do- doesn't sound like much of an orgasm. Yeah, well, so if you want to study that process, we're like, well, this is a no-go. Like, we have to let them do that. Yeah. And the ethics board wouldn't allow it through and for not giving any good reason that we could discern. Um, another university. Hey, science did, isn't but, supposed to be this much fun. All right. Yeah, that was kind of what we got. We're like, you can blue balls, but you can't. This is <laughs> where we draw the line. Oh, what if you go to the ethics board like a like a jilted fifteen year old boy? Like, oh no, come on, it's like dangerous if you if you don't come, it's like it could be bad for you. Like, blue I balls never is thought like of serious. capitalizing on the myth. <laughs> I should have tried that. It's too late. Sorry, guys, that is a myth. You can't use that argument. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but so you went into. The independent world. Yeah. And so I still collaborate with universities. You know, I love scientists and we get along really well. It's more the um, kind of deans that are hand wringing and worried, you know, about what their donors are going to think. <laughs> so I, yeah, we still have oversight, uh, same oversight that you know, of ethics review that any university research has. I just collaborate with them. And I think those universities are happy to have the orgasm study at some weird independent lab in LA that's not us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not happening on our campus. There's yeah, just so. the little, it's like the science version of like the little curtain in the back of the video rental mm. store. It's the adults only. <laughs> it's like just a little bit separate. So mom and dad can still shop yeah. in the front. But like, if you want the good stuff, you know where to yeah, go. Yeah, if I serve that function and it gets the work done, <laughs> let's go. Uh, but this is so odd that it's hard to get that research done because sex is like such a fundamental part of human life. I mean, we, I would... Is it the case that like we understand like a lot about eating and breathing and sleeping, but a lot less about sex? In many ways, yes, especially kind of functionality in sex. So we like know a lot more about male anatomy, but there's still questions about female anatomy and functionality. That's where we're like gone. Like basic stuff? Yeah. So kind of um, – Like, you know, once you've got a cadaver, you can cut it up and you can look at stuff, but you don't really know how that works when the person is alive, (laughs) which seems more important. Um, That's not the best way to study sex is just cut up a (laughs) cadaver. It can help you a little bit, but you're like, how does this cadaver? Okay, go ahead. So if you want to say, well, how, you know, when this is in action, what's really happening Mm -hmm. and how do we understand that? Yeah. So the function as functional aspect is I think where we really have big gaps in understanding like how does this work when someone's interacting uh, you know by themselves even as one thing versus with a partner that is infancy you know we know very little about two people interacting together sexually so. really yeah this was uh, you may have seen really fun study I did with a, a case uh, 10 years ago maybe now they put two people in an MRI tiny people and had them have uh, vaginal intercourse. And just image the pelvis and like, oh, oh, we didn't know that fit that way. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, what? Did no one think to look at this before? <laughs> like, wait, so, wait, what fit what way? They, so they were describing the um, penis as more a boomerang shape when it was intravaginal, at least in this couple. And of course, we don't have big population samples of this, so we don't know how common that is or how much that varies. But we, you know, you always kind of joke if you have a uh, sexual interaction, you know, it's like, oh, this is, you know, it's straight. In. It's, well, it turns out yeah, it's not straight in. straight in, you know, it's like there's a lot of curvature. And what might that mean in terms of functionality of getting, you know, if you're trying to become pregnant of, you know, expelling the ejaculate into the vaginal area and, you know, how that could impact uh, uptake. And, mm-hmm. you know, so those are kind of functional questions that, you know, the science looks a little goofy and it made the news rounds at the time it came out. But there are real functional questions about that. You know, it matters that it's a boomerang and not a stick yeah. <laughs> when it goes in. So it's kind of striking to me that like, you know, there's famous uh, sex researchers, right? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, Kinsey Institute. I remember seeing that movie. That's about where I Kinsey. trained. Yep. Really? Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> I saw that movie with my parents. It was fun. Um <laughs> Uh, masters, Mas- <laughs> yeah, Masters <laughs> and Johnson, right? They're, these are famous names. Those are our progenitors, yes. Progenitor, exactly. Mm-hmm. But that was a long time ago, and mm-hmm. and I'm not, you know, other fields have, you know, we know Albert Einstein, we also know Stephen Hawking, yes. right? Yeah. It, but it seems like with sex, we are sort of stuck in that same, like people are still like, oh, Kinsey scale, yeah, that's the most up to date stuff. <sighs> like, wait, that was like, <laughs> was sixty years ago? Yeah, yeah, about. 
Yeah. So I think like Masters and Johnson are a great example because they have this really famous model of sexual response that like if mm-hmm. you've taken a human sex class, like an intro class in college, you got taught this model. You're still getting taught this model. I think the model's wrong. And I think we have data to show that part of it's wrong. Mm. But it's going to take me a while to get it out. And I don't know anyone else even working in that area. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, as we continue to have these kind of repeated over and over again, you know, it's going to take us a while to correct the record. Yeah. To update the record. But it's just, we are a tiny, tiny field. So I would guess like in the U.S., there may be 12 of us doing sexual psychophysiology. Most people have fled for just Canada. Just 12 people. Well, most have left because of the climate in the U.S. Got um, it. And they'll go, if they're English speaking, probably to Canada. Yeah. Um, and then Europe just doesn't have grants that are as big. So there are uh, quite a few folks that study it in Europe, but they aren't. Uh, sometimes able to have as big of a projects just because the funding structures are a bit different. So America is falling behind in sex science. We are absolutely falling behind and it's an embarrassment. (laughs) (laughs) We're losing (laughs) the sex science cold war. Um, Well, what are the big, like uh, the thing is there's so much pseudoscientific language Mm -hmm. about, about sex. I was talking in the intro about sex addiction. You hear people say with porn, for example, that like they say it, Quasi-scientifically. Porn is ruining American men's sex lives. Um, We've had that pitch come up in the, in the Adam ruins everything writers room, you know, when writers and researchers are pitching that mm-hmm. like, I, I read this about, you know, that porn is like an epidemic that's ruining American men's sex lives. And then I've also heard the, alt, the, the, the opposite pitch of actually that's a myth. And the fact is we couldn't find enough solid information to do the story. We just said, we, we actually are not sure what the truth is. So we're not going to do this. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, you sighed when I was saying part of that. So yeah, please, <laughs> please enlighten me. What is the truth here? Uh, well, so there, I guess there are two things. So one is kind of its current status in the diagnostic whatever, and then there's kind of the science issues. And so mm-hmm. diagnostically speaking, no one recognizes porn addiction. So we have the national group, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual that does not have porn addiction or sex addiction or anything really like that in it. And then uh, we have the international, the international class- classification of disorders, and it does not have porn addiction in it either. Um, it has something that looks a little more like sex addiction, but it's different um, that they've just introduced called sexual compulsivity, which was very controversial. I can talk about that. Uh, <laughs> so no one recognizes porn addiction. That doesn't appear anywhere. You can't diagnose it. There's no code for it. However, uh, in the scientific area, you know, we're having lots of debates about clearly some people are walking into offices and saying, I'm watching too much porn. Right. Yeah. There's entire. Those people exist. You can go on Reddit and you can find whole communities of people. I mean, you can find communities of people on Reddit who are doing (laughs) literally anything. Yes. You can find people who are who are jerking off to paper clips and they post pictures of their favorite paper clips. You Um, went deeper than I did. (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, that's what that place is. But yes, there are people who feel this Mm -hmm. uh, problem and they're like, God, I I need help. Yes. So that question is when someone. Yeah, I'm also a licensed psychologist. If someone Mm. walks into my office and says, I believe I'm watching too much porn, my first question is, where does that come from? You know, what's the etiology? Because that's how I know how to help you. So the best predictor of someone identifying as a porn addict is that they were raised with conservative values, Mm. not necessarily religiously, but that their family has conservative values. And on average, they tend not to watch any more porn than people who are not distressed about their use. Oh, really? So in other words, these are people who just feel horrible, like they're very shame-based in general, Mm -hmm. and they feel bad about lots of things they do, and they may have some perfectionistic kinds of qualities in their personality. And that kind of a person, you know, if they present to me and say, I'm watching too much porn, I'm probably going to do education with them and talk about shame issues and um, family of origin issues maybe. Um, however, you know, if someone's coming in and like, man, you know, I'm watching a lot of porn before I go out at night to the bars and then I keep, you know, I mean to be faithful to my partner who doesn't want me sleeping around and, and I mean to use condoms and I, you know, now I've got all these conflicts and I'm not making it to work. I was like, okay, (laughs) there's something else is happening. You know, it could be lots of things. Are you, uh, you know, depressed? So a lot of people who believe that they have a porn problem or a sex problem, uh, actually have a primary do- diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And that's how they cope with it. You know, they say, mm-hmm. well, how do I adjust my emotions? Well, then I'm not going to treat porn. 
I'm going to treat your depression because we have excellent treatments for depression. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're just using it to cope, well, that makes sense. Absolutely. Or are you doing that because it's a feature of mania and you have bipolar disorder? Yeah. There's so many things, you know, that you have to go through before I would even start to think about that. And then the data we do have, you know, specifically on people who have like porn issues, uh, they just don't fit a lot of the classic predictions mm. of addictions in general. So they don't look like other substance addiction models. And so something's going on. You know, we want to figure out how to best help these uh, men and women and whomever who <laughs> have these issues. But uh, there, there's just so much push yeah. to stamp it with addiction. And right. I think there you know, some financial reasons for that, uh, maybe some political reasons for that, but not they're not scientific. I don't think we can call it an addiction. Well, addiction, the problem is addiction itself is also poorly understood and and com and very complex. Yeah, I would say we understand a lot about it, but now we're to the nitty gritty of, you know, yeah. how, you know, to what extent do you think something has to have withdrawal to be called an addiction? And there's yeah. debate about that symptom. And the, and the scientific understanding is very slow to make its way into the public consciousness. And, but there's, there's all these gray areas with things that we, even that we understand better. You know, I think about, talked about like video game addiction and gambling addiction, you know, that my understanding is like slot machines, for instance, like really do can cause uh, an actual addiction, right? Um, I, 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 I know you do, do you disagree. <laughs> yeah, so I think oh. that's more compulsive. So again, there's more um, evidence that that looks a little bit more like we understand other substance uh, mm -hmm. use issues. But even there, exactly, like there's debate, like, okay, yeah. if it's not an exogenous substance, so exogenous coming from outside the body, you put right. it in with a pill. Uh, you know, is there some supra physiological response? So like if I take cocaine, I have you know, more um, broadly, we'll say dopaminergic receptors occupied than I can possibly do by myself. You yeah, know, I can gamble all day. I can masturbate. I'm never going to do what cocaine can do. And uh, so at what point do I say like there's it's not enough, you know, like we need some supra physiological event to be motivated to call something addictive. Mm. Well, the, the comparison I was going to draw is like, okay, so, you know, slot machines can be compulsive at, at least, right? And are sort of designed to cause that sort of behavior in people. Um, but like video game addiction is like a thing, is often a scary, you know, a, th a thing that, you know, uh, politicians who don't understand the topic very well bring up to frighten people. Thank you. Right? Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, and when you when you spoke about depression, it reminded me of that because mm -hmm. like there have been times in my life I was depressed and I played too many video games mm -hmm. because the video games give me like a feeling of accomplishment that I'm not able to get in my own life and I don't have to leave the house. Or right? social if they're multiplayer or yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that could be an unhealthy amount of overuse. That doesn't mean it's an addiction. But then there are also games in the middle that are like specifically almost trying to use slot machine mechanics mm -hmm. in order to get people hooked. Right. And in order to where I play this and I'm like, this is pernicious. This is like doing something to me. This is trying to do something to me. And even that is so hazy, uh, like where that distinction is drawn and, and where we should, you know, draw that line and how we should talk about those things. Um, when you add sex into it, <laughs> which we also don't understand that well. Yeah. Sex has some nice rate limiting features that make it a bit different as well. So mm. that's uh, generously what I'm calling the refractory period. <laughs> <laughs> this is like after you, uh, you're saying uh, you, you jerk off and you can't do it again for a little bit. At some point, uh, even if you are sh uh, short latency, it becomes very difficult. <laughs> mm. So, you know, that's, have you studied this? Uh, in, indirectly. So there are lots of scientists who've worked on <laughs> I've also, issue. I've studied it kind of directly, <laughs> uh, but please tell me. <laughs> so like, uh, mostly gets studied from a fertility perspective. You know, mm. that is like, what's the content of the ejaculate after the fifth, um, you know, fifth round and as much time, you know, 24 hour period or something. And in fact, if you're trying to get pregnant, you know, the uh, seminal content does reduce over time uh, as well as the total volume. So, you know, probably not good to just have sex as much as you possibly can yeah. <laughs> during fertile windows. So that's where we get those kind of data is exactly like having people masturbate in labs and <laughs> looking at the samples. So uh, those kind of things have been somewhat characterized. And then there's um, but the really good data about uh, kind of the refractory periods are hard to dang it. You know what I'm going to say? Hard to come by. <laughs> I was trying to stop it, and then I couldn't find a way out of it. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, um, well, uh, it wouldn't be a very good episode if we didn't take advantage of these happens, moments. It just happens, yeah. <laughs>
But yeah, the data are uh, very sparse that I would say are very robust, helping us understand kind of what the variability of that period is. Got it. Um, well, what about uh, sex addiction? Right? I talked about the, at the opening of the show when mm-hmm. there's like this. So we have these folk pseudoscientific understandings of how sex works, right? Like the public believes that there is such a thing as sex addiction. I've noticed. Mostly because (laughs) people go on Dr. Phil and talk about it or they go apologize to Oprah and they say they're getting treatment for it. Um, And they go to uh, some sort of place that claims to treat sex addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's like, but is this a... And and I'm not talking about porn addiction. I'm talking about like having sex with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Is this real? Is it a myth? What's the truth about it? Uh, It's a myth, but less of a myth than porn. So porn is very uh, much easier to study in the lab. You Mm. can expose people to porn pretty readily. (laughs) But uh, having people actually interact sexually in a laboratory so that we can look at the physiology is something very, very few labs are doing. Mine's doing it, but uh, figuring out what protocols should look like to even – study that like two people interacting when is that abnormal yeah when is that not a typical sexual response and uh we know we can't just go by self-report like sex data there are places you know where self-report is okay this is not one of them yeah (laughs) people do not accurately (laughs) report even if they want to they don't know often what their bodies are even doing Mm -hmm. so i can't go you know to women now and say did you have an orgasm? I I don't trust that anymore. I don't even know what they're telling really? me. So. Like if you're just trying to do on a survey or yeah. if you're observing someone in a lab and you're just trying to do self-report on if they have an orgasm, you can't no, trust No, in that. the lab I would because okay. then I have measures that I'm making sure they, they did. Got yeah, <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. part of why I now no longer trust self-report from women. But, so. but no, seriously. So you're saying you need that that physical, yep. you've got a whatever them hooked up to to measure that you it happens. You need some more objectives. Self-report is fine at some point, but you've got to verify, trust, but verify, <laughs> like bring them in. Um, because even if people want to be honest with you, they can't necessarily, do they yeah. have the proper sex education to understand what their body is doing in the way that a scientist means it? Right. Ask. Right. Okay. So it's very hard to study, uh, but what is, does it, is it real? I don't think so, but I'm using a little more cautious language there mm-hmm. because there are more gaps. Got it. Things that we've just not been able to test yet. So is this just like an excuse that people are making up for bad behavior? I mean, that's the cynical way to look at it, right? Like, oh, oh, no, sorry, I have an addiction. That's like a I'm shifting it from one realm of social understanding where I'm a bad person Mm -hmm. to a medicalized one where, oh, no, I just have a disease. Like no one could be held responsible for their disease in order to evade responsibility. How much, I mean, maybe this is outside, you know, where you feel uh, licensed to speak, but like how seriously should we take that sort of attempt to shift? There are definitely people who are using it for secondary gain. That is either they cheated and they'd rather have it framed as a disease than a moral failing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are people uh, who shall remain nameless who are sex offenders who would rather be, you know, oh, I'm just so masculine that I'm a sex addict rather than no, I'm like assaulting people. Yeah. Uh, that between those two labels, they make their choice. And, you know, in, within our field, you know, there's been a huge backlash of people who treat sex offenders telling the sex addiction people to knock it off. Like, that, do not treat sex offenders in an addiction model. Are you nuts? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, they have good treatments. They know how to help those people and we should let them do that. That's their expertise. Yeah. So uh, in large, though, I don't think most of the people who go for sex addiction treatment are those kind of folks, you know, these are people who are really upset generally about their own behavior uh-huh. and they don't necessarily understand kind of why they're doing it. They don't get their motivation. And so we hope that they are going somewhere where they can gain insight and not just be shamed for their sexual behavior. And that's what we're concerned. Some of the sex addiction treatments are doing. Got it. So it's really more of a, a almost like a therapeutic concern where you've got people. Yeah, there's the. There's the sex offender or the sort of men behaving badly and trying to get out of it specter that I'm raising. But then there's also the people who are like, man, why do I keep it? Why am I having one night stands that make me feel terrible over and over again? I think there's a lot of truly held beliefs. I don't think these are mostly uh, people who are trying to get away with something that those exist in that group. But I think they're a small proportion. And so then the question is, right, like if I'm um, so of people who are depressed, about 15 percent say when I'm in a depressed mood, my sexual interest increases. Well, that's not usually how we think of depression. When wow, you're yeah. depressed, you can't get out of bed. You're not going to go hooking up 
Well, it turns out some people use that to help themselves feel better. So maybe we should be looking at you know, depression as a potential predictor of these quote unquote compulsive sexual behaviors, hmm. because guess what? Sex feels good. Yeah. And- <laughs> it, it, I have noticed that about it. My studies, my studies have revealed extensive that result. Case <laughs> series. So- <laughs> Not as extensive as I'd like, but you know. So there, uh, you know, those kind of more complex ways of thinking about um, what's going on for those mostly guys is what I would really love to see is let's not kind of be stupid about it and say, oh, you know, sex is too much. Sex is bad. You know, we still you know, have a lot of therapists who uh, call when you have a lot of sex partners. Now they know to call, not to call them sluts, but they'll say you're acting out. You're, hmm. you're acting out sexually. <laughs> I say, well, okay, but sex feels good. So yeah. is that acting out? Um, you know, and do we want to devalue that and say you're dumb or you're um, bad if you're doing this behavior? Let's understand kind of functionally where it comes yeah. from. Yeah. God, you're really revealing how much our like cultural hangups, but also like personal hangups that we may not even know that we have like uh, about this topic, like make all of this so difficult that like people are coming in mm-hmm. with maybe some, some deep rooted shame. And so it's like difficult to tell where does the problem begin and the shame come into it. Absolutely. And then, and then they're talking to a psychologist, a therapist, got, you know, and an addiction counselor, God knows yeah, who. It really depends who they talk to. And what model is that mm-hmm. person? using and then what kind of shame based thinking is that person bringing in and all that stuff is like how do you even begin to unpack that for one person yeah publicly we are really sorry (laughs) we are so messed up right now and it is not good for you we're sorry well uh, I I have I want to know how we get our way out of that but um, (laughs) I want to ask first just going back to porn for one second Mm -hmm. um, this idea that I've heard that porn is ruining young men's sex lives that a generation of men Pornhub, you know, the mm-hmm. internet, all that. Um, that's now, uh, I've, I've heard this as, you know, this is a sea change in American sexuality. You've got, you know, men who are on Pornhub every single night, mm-hmm. and that's giving them a skewed idea of sexuality. But now let's say, forget like culturally, you know, just like, hey, this is like a, a depiction of sex that's inaccurate, right? Mm-hmm. I could I could agree with that sort of sentiment of like the falseness of porn and should we be concerned. But, but the claim that I've heard is that literally it's like, stopping men from getting erections in normal, they can't have normal sex because they can only get aroused when they're looking at these like hyper images. Is there any truth to that? Uh, We have not been able to find evidence for that. So people are calling that porn-induced erectile dysfunction and Mm. we've done a series of laboratory studies, including one that's coming out in a couple of months that I'm dying to talk about and I can't talk about. Oh, um, sneak preview. Yeah, it's going to be the largest uh, sexual psychophist study on the topic to date. And so there, uh, when we have looked, the guys who are viewing more pornography actually tend not to have those issues. Hmm. And I... To me, I think you just have to think about why are people looking at porn, right? This is not going to the movie theater. You're not yeah. going, well, except for you, you're not going to mom and dad to watch a porn video. You're going to masturbate. You know, the purpose is to use it to jack off at the end of the day or jill off or whatever you prefer. Yeah. And so if you think of it like it's just a masturbation, well, why are you masturbating? Okay, well, you know, maybe my partner is annoying me or we're having an argument. And so we're not going to have sex. I know they're not going to have sex with me right now. I'm just going to go masturbate. I'm looking at porn while I do that. But porn didn't make me unhappy with my relationship. Like I'm here masturbating (laughs) because (laughs) I couldn't get sex with my usual consensual partner. (laughs) And so, again, it's one of these issues that the truth is a lot more complex. And if you actually take it into the laboratory and say, okay, you said that you're having erectile problems due to porn and I can't see it. So these guys just tend to have a higher sex drive. Yeah. Um, That is, you know, they're saying they have all these problems. I'm like, no, like you just, you masturbate a lot and, you know, you like, you happen to view more porn because your sex drive is higher. And if that causes, you know, more conflict with your partner because you are really, really trying to get away from these ideas of low sex drive and high sex drive. We're trying to say desire discrepancy. It's just a discrepancy. If you Mm -hmm. find someone who matches you, you won't be an issue. (laughs) Yeah. that's, That's how this works. So, you know, if you are discrepant with your partner, there's got to be some balance. And some people use masturbation to balance that out. And now we're demonizing that. You know, say, oh, God, you know, how could you? And, well, 
think about the dynamic. Like, why is this person right. masturbating in that relationship? And let's try and understand that. It's like, well, they probably have a higher sex drive. And they're using that to manage the discrepancy. Is there a concern about porn, about the, you know, the modern version of porn that you do have, uh, uh, even if it's a non-scientific but, you know, social one? No, I think they're – so the one that worries me the most is kids because mm-hmm. they don't have a perception of, you know, what is normal. And it's we not refuse, the sex ed class that we want them to have as We refuse to give hub. them sex ed yeah. yep, in the U.S. especially. And even if we give them sex ed, you know, we don't mandate that it be accurate uh, for the most part. And Gutmacher has great stats on that. And so really, like you want to take it away on both sides, you know, we're going to take away all your sex ed and then we're going to give you access to porn and not educate you about that either. But the good news is (laughs) there are now uh, three empirically supported porn literacy programs. So one Mm. excellent one out of Boston University. Uh, from Emily Rothman, who is doing a lot of work around how do we talk to kids and educate them in a way that's kind of level appropriate. And she's mainly working, I think, with adolescents. So not the young, young, but a little bit advanced. And there are programs for that. So you don't need these goofball um, you know, fly-by-night websites that are popping <laughs> up. There's actual science <laughs> that will educate kids on kind of how to understand it at a level that's appropriate for them. Yeah. That is free, that is tested, that is, you know, available to the public now. So I encourage any, you know, school um, education person who's interested in, like, how do I talk to kids about this? I'm concerned. There, Things are available now. Yeah. They're available. That Use stuff them. is that stuff is so so important just yes. to yeah. just to give kids any level of sex ed. I, I have this very specific memory. I just uh, oh I, I, don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Oh, it's not that. It's not that kind of memory. <laughs> it's when I was a when, when I was like a, a teenager on the on the early internet, like late late nineties, early two mm-hmm. thousands. There's this website. It still exists. It was called Jack and World. Have you ever heard of this website? <laughs> no, it it's sounds called, great. Called Jack and World. Like J A C K. If you want to look it up, J A C K I N World dot com. And like. It's a very like 1999 looking website. It's just very basic, Mm -hmm. but it's called the male masturbation resource. And it's got like masturbation techniques. There's no porn on the site. It's just like stuff like that. And I was reading it and and I I remembered this website and I looked back at it like, you know, 10 years later and I was like, oh, this was a stealth sex ed site for like young men. Because what it was, was it was like, okay, here's like a jerk off technique you could use, you know, et cetera. But ultimately it was like a sex positive site. And then the main part of the site was just like question and answer. And it was just like kids writing in going like, Hey, why does my penis have a big vein on it? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm really worried about this. And then the answer was always just like, you got a normal penis. Don't worry about it. Like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry about your penis. You got a normal penis. It's okay to jerk off and et cetera. Um, and I, in retrospect, I was very happy that like, I just had some, I read that site, you know, because it was like straightforward. It was scientifically, they, they were like, uh, thanked, Jocelyn Elders, the the, <laughs> yeah. s- the Surgeon General sure. who lost her job because she said that masturbation was healthy, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was like the overall approach of it. And I don't know who the hell made this site and why. I'll hunt uh, him down. <laughs> See, he's got to be one of mine. But just like that, you know, that that much is like so valuable and something that we that we don't give kids at all. Yeah. No, I always joke. I say my whole career in summary is everyone just chill the fuck out. Like <laughs> if I could summarize my research, yeah. it's like, oh, let's all just calm down. <laughs> so I think that's a great kind of way of walking through exactly like, you know, we have these guys who are saying, oh, you know, I'm a porn addict because I have a sore on my penis for masturbating. And I'm like, that's really, really common. It's super common in young boys, especially and sometimes even in older guys. There's there's a there's a simple <laughs> prescription. Let me tell you, it's yeah. over the counter. But you gotta <laughs> like KY it jelly. Out. Yeah. You <laughs> so, go to the lotion aisle. Yeah, it's not a disease. Like sometimes you masturbate too much or you try a new technique, it doesn't quite work. And yeah. that's fine. It doesn't mean you have a disorder, you know, it just means better technique, a little less vigorous. Yeah. yeah. Well, we gotta take a quick break, but I have so many more questions for you specifically about men and women. We'll be right back with more Nicole Prousey. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. 
These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Okay, we're back with Nicole Prousey. Um, So another area you hear a lot of pseudoscientific information about sex is the difference between men and women. As a stand-up comedian, I have heard so much ill-informed pontificating <laughs> at my workplace about differences <laughs> between men and women. Uh, what are some of the myths and what are some of the actual things that we know about those differences sexually? Ooh. I'm sure there's a lot. Uh, yeah. So it turns out a lot of things we attribute within sexuality to gender differences are probably more due to sex drive. So Mm. that is, on average, guys have higher sex drive, and that's cross-cultural. They're very, um, depending who you ask, but uh, maybe one culture where women report having a higher sex drive. So we hear things like, oh, men are more visual. Well, not if you control for sex drive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's, It's people who have higher sex drive tend to respond more to sexual images, like neurally, so speaking neuroscientifically. Um, and you know, it's not that guys have some special receptors in the brain. They're totally different that pipe porn straight to their penis or something like, no, that, of course that doesn't happen. Um, it certainly is the case that women orgasm much less consistently than men do. Mm. That's very well documented. And I back that up in lab physiology. So, uh, it's very much more difficult. It seems for women to get there for what reason we're working on it. <laughs> so these are, all, these are actually the opposite of misconceptions. These are all sort of like our general cultural sort of beliefs about the sexes that are being held up here. Uh, in the case of orgasm gaps, yes, yeah. but not the men are more visual. I'd say that's a myth. Oh, the idea that men are just visual because they're hunters and they need to see a yeah. lion run. No. And so then they see a boob and it's the same yeah. as that. And they want to clunk them on the head with a, um, a club. <laughs> There's uh, more to this than I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people really believe I listen to some really bad podcasts sometimes um, <laughs> uh, where people talk about this shit. No. So um, so it's just that people with higher sex drives are more are more visual. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, that's really interesting that 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 holds up. One thing that really struck me um, was I wonder if you have any insight on this. I was watching a a, a video uh, by a trans woman talking about her transition, and mm-hmm. one of the things she struck me as said that was really interesting was after she transitioned, went on you know all the various hormone therapies you do, said. Um, that she felt her sexuality change and she no longer needed to have what she called like an obligate daily orgasm that like no longer felt the pressure. Like I just must have an orgasm once a day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, that's like a way to put it that I've not thought about it before that there's just like, uh, sometimes for men, it feels like you're, just like taking a crap, (laughs) you know, it's like something, one of the things you got to do, you know what I mean? Is that the research currently on women in drive uh, is a lot. There's a lot of interest in something called responsive desire. So mm-hmm. that is the idea that um, you know we're in the past using the same model for men and women, where you're just supposed to be walking down the street and kapow, you're hit with sex drive, and I must go get off now. And it doesn't work that way. It seems as much for women and probably not for lower drive men either. And so by responsive desire, what we mean is like, you got to have a little something first to kind of get the engine going. Mm-hmm. That is, you can't um, say, I just expect lightning to strike. And yeah. that's my model. Like, if I don't have lightning striking, then I have low sex drive. That's not true. So, you know, if you need someone kind of coming on to you or touching you in like non-sexual <laughs> regions or zones to even start to think sexually, yeah. that's normal. That is the common uh, experience. And so I, we don't want people, you know, believing they're deficient or low drive because they need to be touched first in some way or solicited yeah. in some way. We just are now trying to transition to call that responsive desire yeah. and differentiating that from spontaneous desire that walking down the street struck by lightning kind of feeling that I think you're describing. Yeah. How, how much do we know about when, you know, people do transition, right? Or like, you know, taking, how, how much does that change, you know, the sort of dichotomy that you're talking about? Yeah. So those are interesting because they're exactly supra physiological doses of mm-hmm. hormones. So in general, Sex drive is not tightly tied to testosterone, and that's mm-hmm. another good myth to bust. Yeah. Um, that is, in either men or women, the titers that are in our bodies at any particular time don't seem to tie to our experienced sex drive. But that is not true in the case of people who are transitioning because their testosterone levels are out of super, out of physiological range. They're going supra physiological. Mm-hmm. You know? So this is, um, you know, I'm getting far more or far less testosterone than um, you know, is in a norm within normal limits. You know, mm. I'm now getting, and not that it's a disease, but into disease territory. That is, if a doctor saw this and knew you weren't getting testosterone, right. they would be worried. So you know, those are very different kind of levels and titers of hormones that they're dealing with. But within normal limits, you know, those don't generally tie to the experience of drive. Got it. And in terms of men and women or men and men or women and women together, when we're talking go about, nuts. we're talking, go, <laughs> go nuts <laughs> or any combinations of folks. Um, like what are the misconceptions? What are we learning? What are the fascinating new things we're learning about couples or triples? <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to like be really. How inclusive ever, can we be woke? Yeah, um, exactly. The yeah, so there are there's the stuff we're doing, and then uh, some labs generally are interested in this kind of fluidity idea. So mm-hmm. just briefly, the fluidity idea is women tend to be more broadly aroused um, to a variety of different stimuli. So even a straight woman, you show her gay porn of men or women gay porn, and she tends to respond to it at least a little bit in terms of her genitals, at least. But if you show guys things that are outside of their stated preferred range, they tend to be very constrained to respond mm-hmm. to just what they say they're interested in. And there are a number of labs that are investigating those kind of sexual fluidity issues, mm. and the differences uh, that they think are there between genders. And I'd say we're kind of in the middle of that. We've got some, you know, fair base of knowledge at this point, but we're still trying to suss out kind of what some of those things are due to. Yeah. And then we're actually bringing couples into the laboratory and measuring um, from both of them at the same time to try and understand really what what the physiology of interacting looks like. So we're getting uh, brain measures from both people interacting for the first time ever um, to understand like when someone's providing stimulation, what does their brain look like? And what does the brain of the person who's just sitting there receiving it look like? Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, are those brain states useful for anything? You know, do they have maybe health applications? That's, you know, a strong interest of mine. You know, can we use being highly sexually aroused to help us uh, in a way like meditation may help us? Oh. Or, yeah. So one of the questions is like, to what extent do we have that kind of um, relaxed but awake brain state when we're highly sexually aroused? Yeah. And, you know, if that was the case with couples – 
is there an intervention there? You know, can we potentially capitalize on that uh, and use it to even have partners helping each other if yeah. depressed state or, you know, this is a practice they do regularly together that looks meditative potentially. Yeah. The idea of sexual arousal as like an altered state that's mm-hmm. like meditative, like really uh, resonates with me. Cause I think about the times where, you know, I've, tried to, you know, be aroused and have not been able to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not been able to get into it. Right. Yeah, sure. And it's like, something's running around in my head. Like I'm thinking about work. I'm, I'm yeah. angry at somebody or I'm, you know, you're just like, you're making out with your partner and inside your head is just like, and they're kind of like, where are you? Yeah. And you're like, I'm not here. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And then the times when you're most aroused, it's like, you're it's like your mind falls away and you're just like in that moment and you're just like in this real, and that's like one of the best things about it, frankly, is that you lose yourself and that you, you know, become sort of one with the thing that you're doing. And that's, that's a lot like when people talk about meditating. (laughs) Well, yeah. So we think these are unique brain states and that's one of the kind of discoveries where we think we've made that we're trying to, you know, trust, but verify. And so we see initially when people start to become sexual, you know, the brain is very strongly engaged. You have to have a lot of effort. You have to be able to allocate attention to the stimulus mm-hmm. kind of as you're describing. But then if we say, okay, you know, that's nice. You've been masturbating now and watching porn for 24 minutes or however long we give them. We'd like you to try and have an orgasm. Now the brain state at that point completely shifts, not at orgasm, but long before it. And that's when we start to see uh, kind of a loss of cognitive control or reduction of control. Hmm. And that may be something that looks more meditative. So I don't think that kind of earlier arousal stages look very effortful. Like I have to try and I have to pay attention and I have to like be awake. (laughs) But then later on, it shifts to something that looks very distinct. So uh, we also see this in the sympathetic nervous system that is early on. Heart rate, breathing rate, all that stuff's going up. Um, But then we say, okay, now try and have a climax. Well, Masters and Johnson said, well, you just keep getting more and more and more and more aroused till pow, blammo, orgasm. Yay, go to bed. And uh, our model doesn't look like that. It's like, okay, we get breathing, heart rate up. And then we say, okay, try and have an orgasm. And then they just like start going down. And we're like, wait, what? (laughs) We didn't know that happened. So now we're trying to figure out what that is. Yeah, that is... uh even if you interrogate your own experience mm-hmm. of sex, it's not like, oh yeah, it just keeps going up. I think everyone's had the experience of like, you, you know, yeah, okay, let's try to make it happen. And then, oh, I, it's, well, it's not, not quite happening. There's something, there's something yeah. slightly amiss. There's like, um, yeah, it, it's like a really interesting puzzle to try to figure out like what's actually happening in that moment. As, as, even in that moment, like you said, where you're just like, all right, let's, you know, you're having sex and you're like, all right, let's finish up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what is that difference? And then what actually gets you to the point of finishing up, you know? Yeah. So, and not everyone wears sensors when they have sex. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's like the, or some people I think are calling this edging. Like I hear that term thrown around. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. What the heck is that? Isn't that just being aroused? This is, another, this is another Reddit thing. Well, no, it's maintaining that last moment as so, long as you can. I think the edging is maybe not so special. It's maybe just hanging out in that second phase of arousal yeah. longer. Um, which is great. You know, it looks like fun, but yeah. uh, I don't know that it's anything special to call it edging. It's just, yeah. Is there any sort of re- researching that, you know, the, this part of this, like, is there any, you know, therapeutic advice that you have for folks? Like, hey, one thing I've learned that's like, here's a tip. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that can help people with their, you know. This is a good one. So I think, you know, people tend to have uh, problems with one or the other. So Mm -hmm. sometimes they'll say, oh, I get turned on just fine, but I can't get over the hump. Like I can't have a climax and I don't know why I'm just stuck. Other times they're like, well, yeah, like if I can get turned on, I can climax easily enough, but I can't get into it. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, now it makes better sense because those look like two very distinct brain states. And so maybe you're much better at one than another. So if you're having trouble kind of getting getting over the hump, so to speak, with orgasms, uh, you know, that may be that helping reduce your kind of frontal or cognitive control at that time may be helpful. So. Um, do not pass yourself out. But if you want to experiment with hyperventilating, <laughs> that, um, that could be something that's helpful to experiment with because that can help reduce frontal control. It's so usually um, just like breathe a lot? Yes. Like, <gasps> I'm not going to do it now. I don't want to pass out <laughs> no, on the like, show. That's why I prefaced. Like, do not make yourself pass out. You will yeah. scare your partner. They will call an How do you experiment safely with hyperventilating? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's not right. This is not someone else controlling. It's you controlling. So yeah. if you get out of if you get out of hand, you yeah. just pass out. <laughs> yeah. So okay, just be somewhere safe. Just take some deep breaths and don't go too nuts. But yes. but but t- try try. Well, also again, like meditating, focus on your breath. Uh, faster. That's yes. what people. <laughs> but during meditating, no one's like, "Yes, breathe faster, yes, faster, exactly. harder, harder." <laughs> Um, one question I have about this is you're talking about, uh, again, getting back to, hey, differences between men and women. And you said men sexual fluidity is lower. Um, how do you think about the differences that might be biologically based versus, you know, societal gender role based? You know, that um, like you say to me, hey, men show less sexual fluidity. And I'm thinking, OK, is that like a hang up, you know, because um, as a man, I experience that hang up. Right. Um, or is that like something about, you know, uh, people with those chromosomes? Uh, uh, so there is no nature or nurture, right? This is all mm-hmm. kind of fused together at this point. And uh, maybe the best example of that is we used to have guys uh, monitor their erections during the evening as a way of telling if their erectile dysfunction was due to psychology or due to physiology. And then we find out years later, decades later, that it turns out like if you're an anxious guy, you also don't get erections at night. Hmm. So we can't really use that test anymore and we don't use it for that purpose. But it just tells you like even if you're you know, not in mind, so to speak, your brain is still you know, having yeah. your kind of a psychological reaction or your psychology is still impacting your biology. We can't be dualists here. Yeah, so, that, that's that's the thing. Uh, I understand you're trying to study people as they are. And so like, you know, American men are like live in a society that creates things in their psychology to some extent. And psychology yes. is going to affect biology in this way. And so we're all one organism. But um, so so you think just eradicate that uh, uh, that distinction that I made. Is that the answer? Uh, I mean, I think they're just, they're together. So, you know, it's when you address one, you're addressing the other. Um, So, for example, there are lots of uh, physical determinants, genetic determinants of female orgasm consistency. Mm -hmm. So, like, the distance of the clitoris to the urethral opening, it turns out, is predictive of how consistently you orgasm during climax. Well, we can't change that. Wow. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) not yet. And... uh, (laughs) So what does that mean, right? Yeah. Like, okay, well, if they're farther apart, um, you probably don't even know that because <laughs> yeah. we don't provide that. Um, and, you know, it's also genetically heritable to some extent. So ask your mom, ladies, uh, yeah. you know, like how, how consistently she climax is probably related to how consistently you climax. Yeah. And, you know, so it's not that those predictors don't exist. It's just like they exist in this context of, you know, how aware of that even am I? Do I, if I have that yeah. conversation about, uh, sex with my mom, I probably have a pretty open sexuality more generally, yeah. <laughs> more open and flexible and accepting and not shameful. So that's going to help me, you know, in another way um, that, you know, may impact the genetic impact. And, you know, we, we can push things around from either direction, either, you know, from biology or psychology. Yeah, it's such a, it's such an interesting area to think about. I think again about the um, uh, trans woman who I spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. and it's like, how much is that change that she experienced due to you know hormonal treatment versus to like now identifying as a woman with all the societal you know uh, different like what you know which where is that line? Do we even? care about where it is or are we just going to say hey this yeah i mean this is what and she probably had some expectancy of what would happen yeah. too because i doubt she just decided to have surgery that morning <laughs> she yeah, probably yeah. read about it a lot if she did that yeah yeah uh you know probably read about it a lot before she started taking hormones and just right saw it coming and we're uh, the, and that just speaks to like how complicated sex is because it's not just uh, I've been asking you a lot of biologically based questions, right? That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But at the same time, like sex is not just about us. Like it's not just about genes and penises and hormone amounts and things like that. It's also about like thoughts and feelings and the things that we generally put in this social box. And they're all sort of like mushing together in this really complicated, like bespoke way for every single person. It's like enormously complex. Unfortunately, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like the best predictor of erectile dysfunction has has and continues to be anxiety. Well, mm. anxiety also manifests in the brain. Like we could measure that. Uh, we can measure it in questionnaires. We can look, you know. So, yeah. But ultimately, it's just anxiety for the most part. And so that's where we intervene, you know, when we try and help folks with that. And anxiety is something that like 
you can take a pill for or you can talk to a therapist yeah, about. And it's like both things. Yeah, there are different ways to intervene that can be helpful. I think what this conversation is doing to me is it's helping collapse the mind-body dualism into one. Sweet. <laughs> into We've like, solved it. <laughs> well, as a, yeah, I mean, I, as a person who's always been interested in that question, it's like, it's really cool to, yeah, this is like, this is all one thing. And even half of the questions I've been asking you, I feel like are almost off base because I've been separating them into these two boxes. How much is it one? How much is the other? And this is reminding me like, no, this is one organism that we can talk about in multiple Mm -hmm. ways, but this distinction is somewhat of a false one. No, this is why I love psychophysiology. We sometimes call it a hub science because it really brings together these different ideas where if you're just psychology and you're just asking self-report and interviews, blah, 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 that's limited. And you're just a biologist or just an anatomist and cutting things up. That's very limited because you don't know the function. So we're trying to get it in the middle, you know, and be a hub to bring those sciences together. So what in this field, which is I just learned about today and I'm now so fascinated <laughs> <Welcome>. by, <laughs> what are the what are the big questions that you are that remain to be answered or what are the frontiers you're the most excited about? What are we just starting to learn about? Uh, I'm very interested in health applications of sex stimulation. So I'm not I don't care too much about sexual endpoints like getting you off more or helping your penis. I mean, that's great if we help with that, but I really want to know, like, how can I use orgasm to help you sleep at night? Or how can I use uh, genital stimulation to improve depression? And so, you know, we're in the vein of those kind of applications. Two of the things we're really interested in are uh, the couples research. So actually having two people in the lab at the same time who are interacting sexually and understanding what that dynamic is like. And if it looks like porn, (laughs) Mm you know, which is the model we've been using for decades, Um, And then also trying to understand orgasm physiology. Like we don't know how orgasm is triggered still. And it seems like that would be useful to know if we're going to potentially use it as a health application. And uh, also just for understanding basic physiology. So some of the questions that are still there about our basic anatomy and physiology have not been answered, I think. And again, it's a lot of that functional, like I need to see the orgasm in action. I need to see not just the first two minutes of arousal, you know, not just afterwards, you know, did you spoon? Did you cuddle? Did you pillow talk? Yeah. That's fine. But like what happened in the 15 (laughs) minutes that the scientists left the room? Yeah. We need to get in there. Like we need to know what's going on and understand what that process is like. And are there pieces of that we can pick out, you know, to use in health applications and, you know, along the way, that's kind of how it happens. It's like, okay, we've got this end goal, you know, like yeah. we're doing a study on uh, post-orgasmic illness syndrome and we're trying to understand that. Well, to do that, uh, we what, have- What is post-orgasmic in- illness syndrome? So there are most, these are mostly guys who say they have flu-like symptoms for two to seven days after every time they climax. Wow. Yeah. Terrible. And- Like so, fl- flu-like is, those are bad. That's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like knocked out and they have to figure out- you know, how sexually active they want to be based on having those kind of problems and symptoms. So, you know, in the uh, process of trying to figure out how to study this patient sample, um, we realized like, oh my gosh, we're going to get inflammatory markers. And this is going to be the first time we've ever gotten inflammatory markers before and after climax. We don't know what's an inflammatory marker. So um, like interleukin six is one marker and there are uh, inflammation theories of depression, for example, where some people think uh, major depressive disorder may be due to um, kind of these inflammation problems broadly Mm -hmm. throughout the body. And so I said, well, gosh, you know, if that's true, uh, if this continues to be supported for depression, Um, And we know that orgasm affects the same kind of inflammatory markers that we think are causing the depression. Um, We've got a new intervention. Wow. That's really cool. Right? (laughs) That's why, like, I keep thinking, you know, as much as I hate hitting my head against the brick wall and getting attacked all the time, there's gold in there. Like, there is potential for us to take this so much farther, and we just have to fight to be able to do it. What is your... You know, what What are the prospects for the field getting attacked less, right? And the, the sort of social barriers uh, to doing the research that you were talking about, um, because I'm convinced that this research is valuable to people and that we need to know as I much about one. this as possible. Yeah, you got me. I mean, look, I was obviously a receptive audience. We invited you on the show. Um, I'm not I'm not in here going like, I'm sorry, you study what now? Like, obviously, this is not going to be that interview. OK, well, I'm sorry for you that that has happened. 
<laughs> but how do you, uh, you know, are there, are these barriers going down? Are you optimistic in that regard? How I, do we push that along? In our case, the biggest barrier is our size. We're a very tiny field. And so when climate scientists get attacked by groups that have kind of those motivations, they're yeah. They have, you know, groups to advocate for them. They have people working on Capitol Hill. They have attorneys that work with them. We have none of that. And so I think part of our challenge is to join with some of these groups that have similar issues to what we do, um, you know, who may be willing to get sullied with our presence, you know, <laughs> sex researchers yeah. and say, like, you know, we've got similar problems here. We're all scientists. We're trying to get our work done. And, you know, we're being stopped in ways that we shouldn't be stopped that are not reasonable. And, you know, how do we work together? And so there's like a new free speech union um, that some scientists are joining um, so that we stop getting deplatformed mm. places. And maybe that's going to be helpful. So I'm not sure what the magic bullet is, but I think uh, the particular challenge in my field is just our size. We're very yeah. small and we need to be and joining, I think, with other scientific groups that have similar challenges. Where can folks go to find out more about, like, where, where's the, where's this research happening if they want to, where, where's that study that you talked about that you're really excited about coming out in yeah. a couple of months? Oh, well, that one, you will, I'm sure it will be making the news rounds at the time. Oh, great. Um, so the, my website is librocenter.com. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I post things there as they come out. I'm sure the study will be up there. Um, that particular study, we're actively recruiting for the post-orgasmic illness syndrome. If you think you have that, you know, you can come to the website and find out and see if you want to volunteer in Los Angeles. So that's a good repository to see what we're up to. And if for folks, uh, for folks at home going like, man, I got a sex problem and they didn't talk about it specifically, <laughs> right? Do you have any, like, how do you think about those things differently? Like, do you, do you, you know, do you have a message for, for folks at home worrying about their, worrying about their parts, <laughs> worrying, worrying about their, worrying, worrying about their bits, worrying about what goes on at night or in the day, you know? Yeah. I think in general, it's good to keep in mind that, um, you know, the way people make money off of those kind of things is by uh, saying there are problems, you know, and mm -hmm. so you're, if you go online, if you go television shows, exactly, they're going to be pushing that direction always because that's how they make their money. You know, it's through patients or if they're coaching or whatever that is. And so it's just being a critical consumer of information, you know, and saying like, okay, all I've read here is that this is all bad all the time. Yeah. Is that really true? You know, and do I have good sources? So um, there's, you know, a group of American sex educators, um, the acronym ASECT, A-A-S-E-C-T, uh, gets you to a group of sex therapists and educators who are science-based. And so they tend to have good information, um, you know, looking for sites that are just, uh, you know, as ever, I think we're dealing with a fake news issue. Yeah. You know, a lot of bad information. Just thinking, you know, what, where, what is it that I'm reading? What are the sources? You know, who's contributing to this? And, you know, being sure you don't just watch that one news channel. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in, Nicole. This has been a really awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you once again to Nicole Prousey for being on this show. I had a blast in that conversation, and I really hope you did, too. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineer, Brett Morris, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK, for our theme song. And, hey, you can hit me up on Twitter or anywhere else. You have an at symbol, at Adam Conover. Check out my website for my mailing list and tour dates at adamconover.net. And until then, I'll see you next week on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.